Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There's been a lot of news about Michael Cohen, President Trump's personal attorney. Uh, the latest is a report that AT&T was paying Cohen uh, to get more insight into the Trump administration as far back as the beginning of 2017. To weigh in on this, we want to bring in Noah Feldman, a Felix Prof- uh, Frankfurter professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg View columnist joining us by phone. Noah, Thank you so much for being here. Um, Is there any way to interpret this payment that AT&T made or the series of payments to Michael Cohen other than simply trying to curry favor so that they can get their Time Warner deal through? It's hard to see what else could have been going on. I mean, the AT&T explanation, namely that they just wanted to get some insight into Trump, doesn't seem all that credible since it was already nine months into the Trump administration when they suddenly made this payment to Cohen himself. It looks as though at a crucial juncture in their merger talks, they were seeing if there was some way they could get closer to Trump, and Cohen arguably presented himself to them as exactly such a such a mechanism. If so, it didn't work since the Department of Justice blocked their merger. So uh, one question that this raised in my mind is, is there a line between uh, pay-to-play types of performance and types of activities versus lobbying? Well, legally speaking, if you're paying somebody for the purpose of that person then going to the government, a government official, and trying to convince them of your position, that's lobbying. And lobbyists have to be registered, and Cohen was not registered as a lobbyist. And that's one reason that AT&T immediately said as part of their public statement, we did not hire Cohen as a lawyer or as a lobbyist. They couldn't hire him as a lobbyist because he wasn't registered as a lobbyist. That said, there is, of course, implicit, I think, in the payment, the suggestion that they were trying to hire him to lobby. And that means a serious, that's a serious matter for AT&T, and they'll have to do an internal investigation to figure out exactly what they were up to. So the answer is that legally there should be a line, but in practice there, all, there isn't always. Uh, Noah, uh, as a lawyer, what would you uh, want to know about not only this payment to uh, Michael Cohen and his law firm, but also other payments to his law firm and, uh, and to him? Well, Two, two things. First of all, what services were rendered in exchange for these payments? Did Cohen actually do anything uh, for Korea Aerospace Industries, for Novartis, um, for a firm connected to a Russian oligarch? These are all entities that made payments. Second of all, where did the money go after Cohen got it? And it's worth noting, the payments were not made to his law firm, although you'd think that would be true. They were made to a shell company called Essential Consultants that Cohen set up and that Cohen actually used to make payments to Stormy Daniels. So there's something particularly fishy about the idea that these were not payments made to Cohen's law firm, but rather to a special purpose empty shell that he created to disperse money in part on behalf of the president. Okay, this sounds like a legal question, but is this normal? No. <laughs> I will answer that in a real-world sense. It is not normal. Um, ordinary law firms do not own, or ordinary lawyers do not own shell corporations uh, through which they receive independent payments and then disperse money to 
to others. That's not ordinary behavior. It's certainly not what you do for any legal services, um, because those would ordinarily go through your, your law practice. And so it's a, it's a particularly unusual phenomenon. Now, individual attorneys who do other kinds of things, lecturing or consulting, might have an LLC for those purposes. I even have one for those purposes, but it doesn't make uh, $130,000 expenditures on behalf of clients. Noah, what's the potential liability for AT&T as it does an internal review and as it faces uh, quite a bit of blowback as to these uh, $500,000 of payments that it made uh, Michael Cohen? I, I should say, first of all, that I'm not certain what the number was that AT&T, of AT&T's uh, payments, and I suppose that remains to be, to be determined in detail. But the answer is that if you are a corporation and you hired someone to lobby knowing that that person was not registered as a lobbyist, you could be implicated potentially in his criminal lobbying. Furthermore, if they were trying to influence an ongoing government proceeding, like the Department of Justice proceeding that was considering the possibility of their, their merger with Time Warner, that could be construed as seeking to pervert the course of government practice, potentially even bribery. Now, for bribery, there would have to be not just a quid, not just a gift to someone connected to the government, but a, but a quo, some expectation of a response. But that's something that they should be worried about, and they, they should have lawyers working on this right now. That's a serious matter for a corporation. Noah, wouldn't this be relatively easy to figure out based on how AT&T accounted for the payment? I mean, because if you're paying it for business services, you deduct it. That, that's a good place to start, and I'm sure that investigators both internally at AT&T and also in the government will, will look at that. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily enough. A further investigation has to be done within AT&T to figure out who authorized this payment, how did they account for it internally, um, you know, what was its actual purpose, what did they think that they were buying. But this shouldn't be like a very difficult thing to do, right? I mean, if you're a major corporation, you have a system and a process in place in order to, you know, there's a purchase order or there's a requisition oh, for certain. Oh, him. I mean, full disclosure, my husband's a lawyer. There's a lot to do about the culture and who signed off on it and a lot more, I imagine, as well. No, Noah? Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Of course, that procedure absolutely should be in place. But you can, in a big corporation, you can sometimes sign off on something without knowing exactly what it's for further down the line. And the question here is, who made the approval? What did they think the approval was for? Whatever the line item said is important to know, but it's not the whole story. We also need to know who was the person who, who authorized this rather unusual expenditure. Thank you very much for being with us. Noah Feldman, Harvard University professor of law. You can follow him on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. His latest book is The Three Lives of James Madison, Genius, Partisan, President, and, uh, of course, uh, Noah is a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Well, with oil moving past $71 a barrel... We want to talk to an expert to find out, well, what's next? John Kilduff is an expert. He's a founding partner of Again Capital, and he joins us now. John, uh, what's your take on what's happening with oil prices? Is it all related to the uh, U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal? That's primarily it, Tim. But um, there's really a witch's brew of, um, of uh, 
strong fundamentals in this market. Uh, literally moments ago, and I'm just combing through the data as I speak to you, we got the weekly inventory report from the uh, Department of Energy, and there's drawdowns in everything across the board, crude oil, diesel fuels, gasoline. Um, and this is emblematic of what's happening. Uh, diesel fuels in particular have just plunged. They're really tight right now here in the U.S. And because demand's been strong and exports of these items have been strong, and I'm just checking here, uh, crude oil exports, once again, for the third week in a row, are almost 2 million barrels a day. So the U.S. continues to be a major exporter of crude oil. So there's a strong fundamental story outside of the Iran situation. But, of course, the Iran situation is certainly now a, a big part of, of the uh, overall outlook for crude oil and higher prices ahead. John, I want to give you kudos because you've really gotten uh, the direction of the price of oil correct and you've been uh, really accurate. So uh, given the fact that you have access to the oil crystal ball, uh, we're looking at crude that just passed the $71 a barrel mark. Where are we headed right now in the near term? Well, unfortunately, again, so we have these geopolitical worries with Iran. You know, you have to worry about potential for military conflict. So that pumps up the security premium. Venezuela's productions in freefall. And our friends, the Saudis, are not uh, going to move with alacrity to put more oil on the market the way I see it. Uh, I think they're going to tell us that uh, we should check back with them in about $15 or so, and uh, maybe then they'll help to, uh, to stabilize the price. So I think we're going considerably higher for WTI, uh, upwards of 80 to $85 a barrel. Before $80 to $85 a barrel. What does that do to gasoline at the pump? How much are we expecting to pay? Well, that's $15. You get two and a half cents for just on the barrel, Pim. Um, so you're talking at least uh, about about 45 to 50 cents uh, higher from here. We're already at nearly $3. So you're talking around three fifty uh, a gallon, national average. Higher in some spots, California will be paying, you know, through the nose and, and other, other higher, traditionally higher price zones like the upper Midwest. Wow. Uh, we're going to be speaking more about the impact that that could potentially have on the economy uh, later in the program. But I want to just get your thoughts further on the implications of the U.S. withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal. Um, what are your thoughts about what could transpire as a result of this? And were you surprised by anything that President Trump said yesterday? Well, there were three scenarios in my view. A, he stayed in. B, he had a hard exit, if you will. And or see that he would uh, sort of pull out in, in name only. And I was really thinking that just from a political angle, the way the president seems to operate in these waters, that C would be the choice, and it wasn't. Um, he chose the, the hard path. He chose to re-implement the sanctions. Uh, part of them kick in in 90 days. The rest of them kick in in 180 days. And from my math and from what will be required of our counterparties, our allies, uh, about 500,000 barrels of uh, Iranian crude oil will be coming off the market at the very least. And as a result of that, this is a market that can't afford any lost barrels, uh, particularly if the Saudis are going to be stingy uh, with their production and exports, which they are intimating, as, even as of this morning, that that's their posture for now. So the other big fear, though, here, and I don't even like to really speculate about this, but you saw how quickly the Israelis and Saudis came out in support of President Trump's decision. So the alliance, as I've been calling it, has been laid bare. You have the U.S., Saudi, and Israel aligned against Iran uh, and maybe to a degree Iraq. So um, the, the, the potential or a war premium in prices is something you have to consider now as well. 
John, what's the best way for investors to participate if they don't want to go and play the oil futures market? Well, I still see many of the pure play oil companies as um, not reflective of the price environment that we're in and that we're going to look like we're going to stay in. I think part of the equity discount you're seeing in most of the major oil companies uh, is because of the, the term structure of the curve, the futures curve. Prices out in December are upwards of $10 cheaper than where we are trading in the front of the month. But to the extent this persists month after month after month, the earnings picture for these companies is going to be, uh, I think, big upside surprises. So I think that is probably the safest way to play it. Uh, pure play producers certainly are the uh, uh, Chesapeake Oil should be a beneficiary. Companies like that, um, particularly since the global market has now been thrown wide open to them as of last year, and the numbers are just growing, Pim. John Kildoff, thank you so much for being with us and uh, for sharing your thoughts. Definitely oil on the top of the minds of many, many traders, investors, and others uh, today as oil prices climbed to their highest since November of 2014. As oil prices climb, so too have expectations for inflation. This, in part, is what is driving 10-year Treasury yields above 3%, just as the U.S. government plans to auction off $25 billion of the debt later today. Joining us now to talk about what to expect with all this is David Kotak. He's chairman and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors and comes to us from the lovely Sarasota, Florida. David, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I want to talk about inflation. There's been a conundrum of uh, how much it could potentially accelerate. How much do you view the increase in oil prices as a huge driver in increasing oil uh, inflation expectations and uh, and sort of as a corollary leading to substantially higher U.S. yields? Well, thank you, Lisa. It's always a pleasure. And it's lovely in Sarasota where the price of gasoline is rising like everywhere else. And so the real question, I guess, is how persistent will we see the oil price above $70 and will it stick and pass through? And that remains to be seen. In our shop, we're not so sure it sticks. And the reason is the ability of American producers to turn on production in a hurry to respond to the higher price. So the higher price, in, in essence, cures itself with more supply over time. It takes a little time to come on stream. David Kotak, when you spend time at Lean's Lodge uh, this summer in Maine, do you believe that inflation or the government's debt will be the greater of the two conversations? Um, at Lean's Lodge, we'll have conversations to which, by the way, you are always, both of you, invited each and every time. And I'd love to give you the fishing lesson, too. I think... Inflation will have some conversation because by the time we get there, we'll see little signs of higher. But I think the debt issue is bigger and the Federal Reserve bigger. And the collision of rising debt issuance, Lisa just talked about the Treasury auction size is growing. At the same time, the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet. 
is a double whammy, and that's going to be a subject of a lot of conversation by the end of this summer when we're there. So uh, we're talking about how much debt the U.S. is selling. So they are planning to sell $25 billion of 10-year treasuries today at 1 p.m. New York time. I'm trying to uh, understand the dynamic behind this as people wonder whether uh, whether we're actually going to see a 3% coupon on these treasuries for the first time in seven years. Do you think we're going to get there? Yes, absolutely. Which is I think we had above it before the the whole sequence is over, but yes. So this is what's surprising to me because you have so many investors who've come out and said, you know, I would love to own treasuries and earn a 3% yield. We haven't earned that for seven years. This is real income at a time when there's a lot of volatility. What happened to all them? Well, they're going to have their opportunity. And the question then becomes, what do they do next? I mean, the range of forecasts on the 10-year Treasury yield, say, one year forward, run from the recession is coming, slowdown is coming, policy is going to hurt us, trade war is going to hurt us, and that's going to take the 10-year yield back closer to two or two and a fraction. I think Barry Bannister was out with that just recently. And you can get to the other side of the coin and you can get forecasts. Uh, Jamie Dimon, we're going to have a 4% 10-year treasury. Well, maybe they're both right. And the timing is the question. But when you have a band that wide, it's impossible to know what the 10-year treasury is going to yield a year from now. All right. So if you're if it's impossible to uh, to know what the future brings and gee, that seems like an obvious statement, David. So congratulations for being one of the few people to say it. Um, What what are you telling people who are looking to put money to work? Well, we have a few billion that we manage in the bond market and we use a barbell and we are increasing the size of the safety side of the barbell, which is the shorter intermediate piece, especially as shorter intermediate rates have now come up from away away from the zero bound to more reflective of where they ought to be, at least that's what we think. And so you protect your capital with a barbell. You have some long end to get yield, and you have some shorter intermediate end to protect capital, and you balance the two. And we are increasing the safety side. All right. By increasing the safety side, what does that technically mean you're doing? Is that money market funds? Is that uh, municipal debt? What does that mean? Well, today we bought a a block of uh, the Treasury two-year floater. That's an instrument in which the interest rate floats. Of course, in rising interest rate environments, it floats up. And it's a Treasury security. It's a, a substitute for cash. Money market funds are an interesting question these days because there are sweep vehicles in some brokerage firms where the brokerage firm is trying to maintain the old 20, 30 basis point yield and getting more and more pressure from clients and forcing the client to have to go through a sequence of orders to get to a money market vehicle instead of a sweep vehicle when the money market vehicles paying one and a half or something like that. So in time, that will change because the customers will force the brokerage firms to step up and pay what they should be paying in this market environment. As far as stocks go? Um, Stocks are dependent on what these earnings are going to be now that we've made an adjustment for the tax code. 
Our own view is earnings and the trend of earnings continues. We have a 170 on the S&P as a guideline for 2019. That's got a range of, say, 165 to 175. You're talking about 165, 175 dollars uh, earnings, earnings for the, the uh, companies in the S&P 500. Yeah. And if you take that kind of a number, stock market at the present level is reasonably priced and it has upside potential. What price of oil makes you raise your eyebrows at the pump? Ah, if 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 we trend up towards 80 and it's sustained, that would become worrisome to us. And uh, our view is that the 70-something level is near the peak. We have cut back on our energy stock ETF exposures. We were overweight. We took those profits uh, very recently, and we actually now are going to underweight the industry group because we think most of the profit is already in the stocks. Thanks very much. David Kotaki is the chairman and the chief executive of Cumberland Advisors. The business of veterinary science, it can be summed up in an approval that was gained on Monday for Kindred Biosciences for the first U.S. approval for the treatment for unintended weight loss in cats. The drug is uh, mirtazapine, and here to tell us more about the business and the drug is the chief executive of Kindred Biosciences. They're based in Burlingame, California, and it is Dr. Richard Chin. Dr. Chin, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us about this drug and also about Kindred Biosciences. Well, Pim and Lisa, first uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, tell you about Kindred Biosciences. Miritaz, which was approved uh, just on Monday, is a drug that helps cats that have started losing too much weight. Um, Sometimes people think this is a drug for cats that are too fat, but it turns out people actually like fat cats. This is for cats that are um, too thin, which is a very serious condition because when cats get too thin, they can go into liver failure, uh, which can be fatal. Dr. Chen, oh, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Well, I just, you know, it's it's really uh, interesting to sort of view this product in light of what we've been hearing about uh, pet ownership and just how many more people are adopting pets than they are even having children at this point. How big is the market for this type of drug? So, Lisa, the Americans spend $69.4 billion a year on pets. And of that, about $700 million is on just Valentine's presents for pets. And $1.5 billion is for knee surgeries in pets. So pets have really become family. I'm sorry. I can't get beyond the Valentine's <laughs> presents. What Valentine's <laughs> presents? Okay, fine. Carry on. <laughs> So, uh, you know, pets have become family members. It's, it's, uh, this is not something um, that was the case 30 years ago. So people are really willing to spend money when their pets get sick. They spend a lot of money. $5,000 is what it costs for chemotherapy, and there are 400 oncologists just for dogs and cats in the United States. And as I said, um, knee, surgeries, knee surgeries cost $5,000 per knee. Usually they need both knees. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a big market. 
Dr. Chin, can you explain kindred biosciences in the context of working with molecules or potential treatments that may have originally been developed for humans and using those uh, maybe in a modified way to uh, treat a variety of ailments in animals, such as fever in horses? I know you've got zimeta, also equine gastric ulcers and so on, anemia in cats, among other things. Sure. You know, uh, our strategy, business strategy, is to leverage the billions and billions of dollars in research that's been uh, invested on the human side. And then we take drugs that have been shown to work really well on the human side, and we bring it over to the veterinary side. So um, Meritaz, which is the first molecule, is uh, originally approved for people for a slightly um, different indication. And same thing with Nymeta. This is available for uh, humans in, in many countries. So what we do is we reduce the risk. You know, most One of the biggest issues on the human uh, pharmaceutical industry, the part of the reason why it's so expensive is that there's only 5 to 10% success rate. We are batting about 60% success rate and higher. So the success rate is about 10 times higher. So I want to talk a little bit more about this treatment um, for cats. It's administered by rubbing the gel onto a cat's ears. Uh, is that correct? Yes. So uh, this is a drug that um, is put on the inside of the ear. It's an ointment. And the advantage of this is the following. When you have to pill a cat, it's a major undertaking because cats um, uh, do not like having things stuffed down their throat, and it's very hard to trick them into eating um, pills. Dogs are much more um, easy to pill because you can hide it in peanut butter. So you have to catch the cat. You have to stuff the pill down the cat's throat, hold the mouth closed until the cat swallows the pill, and then you take out your bag box of band-aids and you band-aid up all the scratches and then the next day you try to do the same thing and the cat's running away from you. So instead of doing that, you can just put this drug on the inside of the, the ear of the cat. And you know, this is a very common condition by the way. There are nine million cats that have this problem every year in appetence. Dr. Chin, uh, you're also working on some molecular, some biologic molecular candidates. I wonder if you could just tell us about the pipeline, uh, some antibodies for uh, uh, indications such as uh, dermatitis in, in dogs and in canines. Absolutely. So we have a broad pipeline of monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies are cutting-edge medicine uh, on the human side as well. In fact, seven to eight out of the top 10 selling drugs on the human side are monoclonal antibodies, and they've transformed human medicine. What we try to do is we try to bring not the sort of uh, uh, mediocre drugs, the throwaway drugs from the human side over to the veterinary side. We're trying to bring the best of the best technology. So we have a broad pipeline of antibodies, including antibodies for atopic dermatitis, which is eczema, you know, allergic skin condition in dogs. That's very common. Right now, it's over a $500 million a year market, and it's growing very rapidly. It only costs us about 5 to $8 million to develop each one of our drugs. Yeah. So... 
we like to compare it to the human side. On the human side, it might cost a billion dollars to, dro- to develop a drug, yeah. and a blockbuster might be a billion dollars. Yeah, Dr. Richard Chin, we're going to have yeah. to leave it there. Thank okay, you so much yeah. for being with us, Dr. Richard Chin, President and Chief Executive Officer of Kindred Biosciences in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.